Richard, good morning. How are you, my friend? I'm great. Very nice to talk to you, Marks. Back from the dead, Marks, which is terrific uh, and um, very much alive. So it's, it's a great pleasure to talk to you, as always. Thank you. The pleasure is definitely mine. So, Richard, so most everybody now knows uh, either of you or of the 8020 principle, which clearly you popularized with your best selling 8020 principle book, which has sold over a million uh, copies. And, and by the way, it's been read multiple times by people like myself and had a positive impact. And so we'll talk about success a little bit, um, although I kind of want to focus more on two things. One is your upcoming book, obviously, uh, but really, you know, happiness. Because I do think, and you talk about this a lot, that we should have la dolce vita, right? The, the, the sweet life, everything we want, not just uh, a few things. So what I want to find out from you is how do you define success? I'm sorry, happiness. How do you define happiness? I think happiness is, is what you feel. Um, I have uh, no particularly original uh, thesis on this. I mean, as you know, there's been an enormous amount of research done, particularly in the last 30 or 40 years by psychologists, and they always use a self-report thing. Sometimes they use a three-point scale, sometimes a five-point scale. Um, but on the five-point scale, it goes from not very happy to um, rather unhappy to neither happy nor unhappy and then to um, fairly happy, and then to very happy. And uh, it's, it's in all the surveys that they've done, they find that probably about 10% of the population opt for the very happy. And um, if you had asked me this question a few years ago, I think I would have been somewhere between three and four, somewhere on the sort of... Um, Fairly happy, but not definitely even fairly happy. But now I'm definitely in the top group uh, in terms of being very happy. I've thought about this a lot during the the last few years, and um, I can tell you why why I'm happy if you're interested. But but I think it's it's probably more interesting to take a you know to go through a sort of history of why I wasn't quite so happy before and how I found unexpected happiness. Um, so I think that's, I mean, I don't know whether that's of any interest to anyone else, but it's certainly interesting to me. Well, I, I, yes, it's definitely interesting. We want to find out. In fact, I want to know what was the difference between fairly happy and at some points perhaps even unhappiness and now super happy. And specifically, what did you do or stop doing that caused you to go increase your happiness from, you know, three, four to five plus? Yes, I think there are three things for me, and you mentioned success. The first thing is that for me, and I don't think it's necessarily true for everyone, or indeed for most people, um, but success and happiness are somewhat linked. I mean, when I was growing up, when I went to university and in my first jobs after university and when I went to business school and so forth, which is really the prelude to, to my career, I was really trying to find something that I thought I was very good at. And initially, I thought that might be somewhat in the academic sphere, because I've always been very interested in ideas and able to think about those ideas and possibly even to, to ferret out some things which are very useful there, like the 80-20 principle. Um, and trying to find something that I was very good at initially was I was very good at passing exams. I was very good at um, the university world. It was something that I... It took to like a duck to water. And so I've always been very happy during periods in which I've been learning stuff about subjects that I'm interested in. History was my original subject. 
And so, you know, that makes me happy. And as I've gone through my career, when I've been very successful, I've been very happy. And when I haven't been so successful or when I've been darn unsuccessful, which I have been, um, then I was pretty miserable. The, the first two jobs that I had after university, I wasn't really terribly successful in. And so, you know, thank God I went off to business school before, before other people <laughs> realised that I wasn't particularly successful. Uh, and then after business school, I joined, as you probably know, the Boston Consulting Group. And I think Boston Consulting Group was fabulous, at least fabulous for the first two years, as far as I was concerned, because I loved the idea. It was a very, very exciting time that the company had not been started very long. They were on the frontiers of um, a, a different sort of way of looking at business um, based on what they called strategy, which they, they defined as basically a combination of market analysis and research and financial analysis and research and they came up with the wonderful dogs and cows and stars and question marks the gross share matrix or the boston box or whatever which i still think is just a, a work of pure beauty and you know just it, every time i think about it it makes me happy and so you know working at bcg with some really really you know fantastically smart people and that's been another motif of my um, career when I've been working with lots of very very smart people I'm very happy so that was great the only trouble was that I wasn't very successful at BCG because they placed a, a terrific premium on analysis and I was rubbish at analysis basically I wasn't it wasn't the sort of thing that I liked um, I you know I'm, I think I'm good at other things but but not analysis and so during the last two or three years that I was at BCG, I was terribly unhappy. The reason I was unhappy was that I wasn't being successful. And then after they'd finally fired me, or I'd sort of resigned just in time to avoid being fired, I worked for another um, consulting firm in the same sort of area, but with a totally different set of values and a totally different set of um, ways in which they ran their business. And that was Bain & Company. And I fitted into Bain & Company just as well as I didn't fit into the Boston Consulting Group. And although I was initially very suspicious of Bain, because I thought it was a, a Stalinist cult, you know, they talk about Bainism and so forth. And, you know, to some extent, that was absolutely true. But nevertheless, you know, I was successful there. And that, and that made me happy. And then three of us went off and started our own uh, strategy consulting firm, LEK, and that was amazingly successful. And I was really, really happy there. I was happy. It was very stressful. It was incredibly hard work. Uh, but it was wonderful at all kinds of levels. It was wonderful having your own firm and doing what, exactly what you wanted, although constrained by your partners, of course. Um, it was wonderful because we hired whoever we wanted. And I was in charge of hiring the undergraduates, people from undergraduate school rather than people from... Um, business school. And we, we hired some absolutely fantastic people who were world class, you know, they were absolutely made to do this. And we just let them do it as much as they possibly could, gave them some guidance, worked in case teams. And that was just so enjoyable. Um, and we were successful, we made a lot of money, we worked for prestigious clients. And um, yeah, it was just totally marvellous. 
<clears throat> until I stopped doing that. After I stopped doing that, I, I took five people from BCG and we formed a company called Strategy Ventures, which was very strange because it's, it was probably the time when I've been happiest in my life until very recently. Um, but it, 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 we always thought that we were going to be successful. But in the end, we only made, ever made one investment, which was, which was successful, Filofax. But nevertheless, it wasn't what we hoped for. And then we decided that we'd better go and do something else. And then I went through a period of about 10 years, Mark, when I was the unhappiest that I think I've ever been, or the sort of not happiest, and then uh, basically drifting into unhappiness. And the reason for that was that I wasn't facing any challenges. I wasn't being successful at anything because I wasn't trying to be successful at anything. I, you know, I'd got, I'd, I'd got far too much money and far too much time and I drifted. And that made me sort of pretty unhappy. And then eventually I decided to get really serious about writing books and also about making investments. And I chose to work with one of the people that one of the five people who'd worked with me at Strategy Ventures, a guy called Jamie Reeve, whom I'd hired from Cambridge University when he was 21 years old. We'd worked together in LEK, we'd worked together in SVP. He went off and, and became the head of strategy for the BBC. And then he went into venture capital and we saw each other socially, but we, we never worked together. And, and then I had the bright idea about five years ago saying, hey, I enjoyed working with Jamie so much. Why don't we do it again? And so why don't, doesn't he come and help me uh, make the decisions about which companies to invest in on my, in my uh, private sort of investment portfolio? and about how we make those companies or try and make those companies very successful. And that's what we've been doing. And it's, it's just amazing working with someone that you know very well, that you trust, that you like, that you admire. And uh, we speak nearly every day. He does most of the work. I, I do very little of the work, but it works perfectly. It absolutely works brilliantly. And that has helped to make me very happy. Uh, also, the fact that we've been very successful in our investments and also that my books have been reasonably successful, you know, that also has made me happy. So I'm back with item number one checked off, which is um, success and happiness going together. But item number two is friendships. And item number two is, you know, Jamie is probably the, the most important friend that I have, but I have a small number of other very, very good friends. And the best thing is when you're friends with people and you can collaborate with them, for me anyway, collaborate with them in business. A lot of people think that you should keep friendship and, and business apart. And I think they're, they're right. You shouldn't actually go into business with someone because they're a friend. But, you, but having someone that you know is going to contribute fantastically or make your business successful and working with them on that and they are a friend to start with, I think is, um, is, is, you know, or they become a very good friend, I think is just a recipe for sheer heaven. So the second thing are a small number, is a small number of very close friendships, which are very rewarding. And then the third thing, which is just amazingly unoriginal, is falling in love. Now, you know, I've fallen in love three times in my life. <laughs> Uh, and I went through a long period in which I wasn't in love. And I can tell you that being in love is just, well, I'm, I'm sure you know, Marks, because 
whenever I see a picture of you, I see a picture of your whole family there, you know, very photogenic, huge smiles on everyone's face. And it's obvious that you all love each other, you know, and that's fantastic. And so, you know, I have gradually fallen in love or fallen in love in the last seven years with someone that I, I have got to know very well now. And um, it's absolutely marvellous. It really is. So those are the three things that I think are important for me anyway. Um, and it's the absence of those which makes me unhappy. So how do you define success then? Well, we've talked about this a lot and I think we probably should concentrate more on happiness. But, but you know, success is doing what you want to do and being fulfilled at it, in my view. Um, well, the reason I ask is because you said originally at the beginning that success and happiness go together. Yes. So, right, and happiness you defined as a feeling, and then you said you were successful in some ventures but not others. And so is it the achievement of the goals you've set? Is it the challenging work? I mean, Ray Dalio tell, says that, that for him, doing interesting work with interesting people uh, is what gets him to be excited. No, well, I agree with that, obviously. Um, but you don't have to be successful at everything. You, what you have to do is feel that you're at least doing something which is uh, useful to other people and also which is validated in the marketplace. You know, and if it's something which is supposed to make money, it actually makes money. If it's not supposed to make money, it does whatever it's supposed to do. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's very, very important that you define what, what, what happiness is and that you define what success is. Um, and someone can be very successful and happy at doing something which is, um, you know, which the world at large doesn't particularly recognize. I mean, that's, that's very true for people who raise children. It's very true for people who've got an abiding interest in something. One of my friends is very happy and he's a racing tipster horse racing man and you know he absolutely is quite good at what he does but but you know it, he doesn't have to make a huge profit each season on the bets that he places he just loves horse racing he loves horses he loves the horse fraternity the people that he goes and interviews and talks to the trainers the jockeys and the owners and so you know it can be something where you know if you looked at this person he's, he's completely unknown well, not completely unknown, except in, you know, he's, he's known in a very narrow part of um, French horse racing, where he's, you know, basically one of the most knowledgeable people about French horse racing. But, but, uh, but as an English person, that's a pretty rare, um, a pretty rare situation. And this chap, whose name, um, yeah, maybe I shouldn't give his name, you know, he is one of the happiest people I know, and he's happy because he loves doing his work. And if you love doing your work, chances are that, you, you know, if the work is important anywhere or important to you, you're going to be happy. So I think success and happiness, you know, can go together. But for other people who are, you know, for whom work is not the most important thing in their life or one of the most important things in their life, then I think, you know, there are other sources of happiness and the, the friendships and the rela romantic relationship that you have are probably the most important single things, I think. But so beyond that, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, I was going to ask you, what habits or activities do you engage in daily 
to ensure your happiness at level five or plus? Well, I do some work. <laughs> and I, I talk to Jamie <laughs> and I think, and, you know, sort of thinking is quite important to me. And if I, if, I, if I think that I've come up with something that might be, you know, an elegant idea or whatever, or I, I elaborating it, an elegant idea, then that, that, that makes me very happy. There is something beyond this, though, which I think is very important. And, and I've, I, I don't claim to have any particular... I was going to say I don't claim to have any particular... Uh, I was going to say expertise or success. We can't really get away from these words. I think that the the most important thing is the way that you view yourself and the world and that you find some sort of meaning in the work that you do, that it's not just for you, it's in a way uh, for other people. And you're part of something which is bigger, much, much bigger than yourself. And, you know, certainly... I'm very much a believer in the in the psychology of meaning uh, that Martin Seligman and others have come up with, and that uh, you know really goes back to existential philosophers and to um, you know quite a quite a sort of rich vein of um, of psychology of which Jung was quite an important part. I I do think that believing in something whether it's in a deity or whether it's in a cause or whether it's in concepts is very, very important. And, it, you know, that feeling that you're connected in some way with the universe and that, you're, and that you are picking up ideas from the universe is, to, I think, is tremendously important. So that is kind of like level perhaps that I haven't really got to yet, um, which I think is you know, increasingly something that I'm, I'm thinking about. Uh, because I believe that all happiness ultimately is grounded in self-acceptance and all happiness is grounded in acceptance of other people and is, is uh, grounded in positive emotion and I would even say in love of one sort or another. So, you know, I think that that is the thing that joins everything together. Um, now, so yeah. might, Richard, some people might argue that, you know, and I've seen a lot of individuals uh, sort of bastardize this 80-20 principle and they become obnoxious, uh, self-centered, uh, you know, time misers, you know, and then they, they lead themselves to not only happiness, but actually losing whatever success they may have had. So what do you say to the critic that says, well, isn't the 80-20 principle about more about me, the individual, and my 20% spike or succeeding, then meaning or contribution. What do you say about that? I think the, ultimately the 80-20 principle is about two things and the relationship between the two things. And the one is effort or what you put into something. And the other is results, results, what you get out. And results are meaningless unless they are results recognised by other people. Uh, unless you are, are totally uh, psychopathic, and believe that the only thing that matters is what you think and what you define as being useful, um, then you obviously can't generate results unless you are adding a lot of value to other people. And 80-20, as I understand it, as a philosophy of life anyway, is not about cutting corners. It's not about putting in less effort. It's about getting fantastic results 
for whatever effort you put in. And the fantastic results dwarf everything else. The results are more important in a way than the, than the difference in the effort that you put into something. And the big, dis right, Richard, the big distinction is that it's not about subtraction, although it sort of is, right? But it's about finding that little screw you can turn a quarter of an inch that makes everything move bigger. So for you, an example, talking to Jamie Reeve, even though it might be a, an hour or shorter conversation, gives you huge results in, in happiness and success. So are you always then looking for, in terms of your happiness, what are those few buttons you can press that give you an exceedingly amount of good feeling and results? I don't do it consciously. Whether I do it unconsciously, subconsciously, I, I really don't know. Um, I do think about it when it comes to, you know, business results. You know, I do think about what are, what are the few things that I could do or the one thing that I could do, which is most likely to lead to whatever result it is that I'm focused on at a particular point in time. Um, but as a philosophy, it's really about the results and what you can do to generate the results because none of us on our own are actually terribly significant and yet you do see great people who achieve you know Nelson Mandela for example who achieve the most amazing results who you know basically manage to bridge the gulf between two completely different cultures between groups of people who hated each other between people who were being subjective and abused by those who had the power and the people who had the power were not able to be secure because they were always afraid that the majority of the population would rise up at some stage, maybe years hence, and kill them and drive them into the sea. And one man, and it was only one man, I believe, that could ever have done this. Oliver Tambo couldn't have done it. I don't, I don't believe that any of the other ANC leaders could have done it. One man actually managed to make an ungovernable country governable. South Africa has its problems, but it's hugely better than it was before 1994. And that was really due to two people, you know, which was Nelson Mandela on, on the one hand and uh, the president of, of um, uh, South Africa on the other hand. Um, so if you... F.W. de Klerk and... Sorry, go ahead. And, and so, you know, when you look at... Sorry, the point I was trying to make was that when you look at the fantastic achievement of one person and then you, you look and you say, well, you know, then Nelson Mandela must have been able to walk on water and all the rest of it. It's just not true. I mean, Nelson, Nelson Mandela had lots of flaws, lots of weaknesses, and it's, just, it's the same as true for anyone. But somehow they managed to focus on the one thing which is important. And in this case, it was that he and the half dozen Afrikaans leaders got to like and trust each other and believe that they could trust the word that when Nelson Mandela said, we're not going to drive you into the sea, they actually thought, yeah, that's probably right. And, and he, he may be able to stop the other people driving us into the sea as well. So, you know, I, it, it is a focus and the results can be fantastic. But, you know, the idea that the key thing is the amount of effort or the, the lack of effort, that's a, that's a means to an end. That is a means to actually trying to define what the, as you say, the leverage point is. What's the screw that you can turn, as you, as you put it? That, 
that's very important, but the important, the most important thing is that you go for results which are transcendent, which were, are really going to make a massive difference in people's lives. And that is not being selfish, and that is not being um, callous, and that is not being materialistic. Um, that is being human. Okay, so two questions follow up. One is, um, you know, you've had patron saints like Ronald Reagan and Warren Buff and uh, I forget who else that you had for you know, productivity. Do you have patron saints for happiness? And then the second follow-up question is, there's this big movement about habits. And you talk about the seven, you know, happiness habits in your book and what have you. But yet, here we are focused on results. So do you put results as the end game and then do you modify your habits and your activities to get that result or do you focus on the habits and then keep those consistent and that gives you the results right well let me answer the second question uh first and the first question second um i think it's been proved that the habits are a way of locking in your brain to doing something automatically so riding a bicycle for example you learn how to ride a bicycle and then you don't have to think about riding a bicycle and a lot of us get into very bad habits or very good habits and they sort of lock in and they become um pretty pretty automatic so you know the habit is important but it's just a means to an end and there are probably the 80 20 rule applies to, to this as well there are probably about half a dozen habits that are really incredibly important and need to be locked into your brain, like deferred gratification, you know, like sort of eating the, eating the best part of the pudding last rather than first. Uh, you know, so, so that's, that's my answer on the results. On the, on the first question, the sort of patron saint, who are the patron saints of happiness? I would nominate someone that I bet a lot of people listening to this podcast who, you know, will listen to this podcast will never have heard of but who was incredibly important in world history. And that's a guy called Marcion. No, nobody even knows his first name. Marcion was a, a wealthy shipbuilder born about 100 AD, 100 years after the birth of Christ. And he stopped, decided he made enough money. He was originally from Turkey, uh, born on the shores of the Black Sea. And he then decided to go to Rome. And uh, his father may well have been a bishop or a deacon in the burgeoning Christian church at the time. Anyway, he went to Rome uh, because that was the most important uh, part of the, the uh, Christian church. And, and it, you know, Christianity was very, very small at that time. And Marcion then developed two... Uh, theories which he expressed in books. One of them was what later became the New Testament. So he, he was the first person who said, let's collect together the you know, sacred writings of Christianity because Christianity had only really just you know, started fairly recently. And so he came up with what they now call a canon of, of books and his canon composed just one gospel, which was the Gospel of Luke, and also are uh, 10 of the letters of Paul, Paul of Tarsus, so we call Saint Paul, but wasn't, wasn't called Saint Paul at the time. <clears throat> so 
He then said, that's, that is basically our sacred literature. And of course, that, you know, particularly the, the letters of Paul have resonated down the centuries. And anyone who's thought seriously about issues like free will, whether they're Christian or not, uh, you know, has certainly used the ideas which were developed by, by Paul. So that was not a bad um, you know, thing to do. The other thing which he did was that he wrote a book which no longer exists because all copies of it were burnt as heresy. <laughs> and the only, the only um, way we know what Marcion wrote is because of the detractors who basically hunted down his people and uh, tried to, to eliminate all of the um, supporters of Marcion, which they took five centuries to do because churches in the East were still going under the Marcionite banner in the 5th century AD. <clears throat> and um, what he, he came up with a theory, which I, I really describe it more as a theory of love than anything else. I mean, the, the theology is bizarre. I don't think anyone sort of, you know, today would actually believe in the, the cosmology of it. <clears throat> but he said that there were two gods, because given the fact that there's suffering in the world and a lot of evil in the world, and given the fact that the Jewish God, Yahweh, was, was you know, not noted for his uh, generosity in the early stages of the writing of the Old Testament, although, um, as it were, his report card improved considerably uh, as time went on and he became more merciful and started to forgive people and believed in social justice and all the stuff which came through the prophets such as 2nd Isaiah and Hosea. Um, and uh, basically, he said that the the problem with the Jewish God was that he had been the creator of the world. But then if you look at the life of Jesus and what Jesus did, he said, you know, here you're in a different moral universe. You're in a universe of love, of forgiveness, and not one of retribution, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and so, so on and so forth. And so he said, you know, it's impossible that the old God could be the same as the God revealed by Jesus. Now, who was this God? Well, he said, we don't know. We don't know anything at all about this God. He's an alien God. And, uh, but the thing is, although there was no relationship between mankind and this new God, the God of love, um, nevertheless, he was prepared to send Jesus down from the heavens and basically to demonstrate the nature of love. And that uh, this God, that was the only thing we knew about him. We couldn't pick up any signals about what he was like from nature or from the world because he didn't make the world. Uh, but he was one of pure, ineffable goodness. And he constructed a theory which, which made Christianity the most attractive religion that there ever has been or could be. It's not the same as modern Christianity, unfortunately. So he took all the bad things, you know, the desire for justice, the retribution, the fear and trembling before the Lord and all that sort of stuff, and he eliminated that. Uh, in fact, he eliminated it, uh, one of the detractors said, uh, with a razor blade because he would cut things out of some of the, <laughs> some of the, some of the letters of Paul or the gospel which he had that he didn't think reflected well on God. 
And what you were left with was just pure love. And he said, ultimately, evil will be vanquished and love will triumph and everybody in the world will be saved. And this was a version of Christianity which was enormously appealing and that explains why he was the most successful evangelist ever. Um, and so I would make him my patron saint of happiness because he believed that we should be happy and we could be happy. And the way to do that was just accept the grace of God and the love of God. And that was the whole of the nature of the gospel. Long answer, I'm afraid. <laughs> Very simple question. No, but it's a great answer. So you think he's a patron saint because he focused primarily on love and goodness and acceptance of something and others. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, so then how do you, as him having one of your patrons of happiness, how do you model him or try to model him on a daily basis? I don't think I, I would presume to do that. I really don't. Um, I just think it's a very... It's, it's a very attractive idea, and if I find myself trying to be judgmental about someone, I try and stop. And if I find myself, much more important perhaps, if I find myself being ultra-critical of myself, I stop. Of course, it's good to be critical of yourself, particularly when you do something wrong, as, as I do, and uh, I guess most people do at times. But um, I think it's very important that you, um, at the same time, accept yourself and accept all that is good. Uh, that comes to you from the outside and that you believe in some way and, you know, the metaphysics of it and the theology of it utterly escapes me, but in some way that you can be part of a sort of love machine and that, uh, you know, you have a choice whether you put a good construction on something that you do or a bad construction and the same on what other people do as well. So that's what I try and bear in mind. And I think that, Are you... yeah. No, go ahead, Richard. No, no, I'd, 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 I'd finish, Mark. I mean, I think, I think we're straying into areas where, um, which are tremendously important, but I don't think I really have anything original to say about them. So are you more or less ambitious now than you were years ago? Well, I'd like to say more ambitious, but I, but then you can't be ambitious in the abstract. You have to actually be ambitious to do something. And I'm still searching for what that next thing is. Uh, but yes, it will be something big. So yes, and there will be something else. So I think I'm more ambitious. And that may be a reason that I'm more happy to go back to the, uh, the original question. I think we yeah. strayed over our... Uh, I try and keep these things to 30 minutes... Uh, is there just one final question that you'd like to ask me? Yeah. What regrets do you have, if any, thus far, and how would you change that in the future? I th well, I certainly regret drifting, this period of drift in my life after LEK and Strategy Ventures. Um, but there's nothing you can do about that uh, except not drift again. <laughs> so... Uh, I, I don't think, apart from that, I have any regrets. I don't think it's very healthy to have regrets, actually. I'm with Edith Piaf. No, no regrets. And so what's next? What's big? I don't know. Uh, we'll have to do another podcast when I've got round to that. <laughs> very nice talking to you, Marks. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Have a great day, my friend. Okay, and you. Bye now. Cheers.